Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Some of you may not like what I'm going to say today. This passage of scripture is hard to swallow. And for that reason, it's virtually ignored by many pastors and and churches, especially in our culture today. It's virtually ignored, and yet it's very clear. Paul doesn't mince words. It's very clear and very direct. This text is virtually ignored and very clear, and it's vital, absolutely vital to our individual lives and to our church as a whole. And so I hope we can wrestle with it together today. Before we read the text, by way of reminder, if you're new with us, we're in a series called Saints Together. We're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we come to chapter 5. That name, Saints Together, didn't come out of nowhere. Right from the outset of the letter, Paul gives this vision in chapter 1, verse 2. He writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. We are called to be sanctified, set apart, made holy because of Jesus. That's all of us as Christians. This isn't some special class of Christians. We are saints together. In other words, we are called to holiness and to live out that holiness as a church. That's the vision. Now, the problem is that just like Corinth, we're living in a culture that tolerates sin, even celebrates sin, and the church is following suit, becoming more and more comfortable with sin, even sexual immorality, and sin has a way of seeping into the church. Now, I'm not talking about a person struggling in sin and getting help with it and repenting of it. I'm talking about patterns of sin, habitual, ongoing, blatant, unrepentant sin, and we condone it. We turn a blind eye to it. We ignore it, and as a result, the church is quickly becoming more and more like the world. And so what do we do? What do we do when those who claim to be Christians continue in blatant, unrepentant sin? How do we respond? That's the question we're going to seek to answer as we look at this text in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. Follow along with me as I read. This is the Word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. Now, a passage like this one can come across as kind of intrusive and judgmental, but God is not a killjoy. He's not. He's, he's, he's given us his authority in our life as a good thing. He's our father and he knows what's best for us. He's after your joy and your safety and your flourishing as an individual and as the church. And so what do we do then when Christians as members of a church family, continue on in sin with no desire to change. What do we do? Well, this passage shows us two ways that we can respond. We'll simply call it the wrong way and the right way to respond. Now, before we jump in, I I just want to make sure, just to be crystal clear about this, that we understand what we're talking about here. Struggling with sin isn't the problem, all right? Struggling with sin isn't the problem. We will continue to struggle with sin as Christians, and we want to be a church where you can come and find encouragement and help along the journey. Struggling with sin isn't the problem. Defending your sin is. So what we're talking about is a person who's claiming to be a Christian and a member of the church in good standing And all the while sinning in a very blatant, unrepentant way. And they don't think it's a big deal. Even defending their behavior, refusing to repent and to get help for it. And so how should a church respond? Let's start with the wrong way. This is the way the Corinthian church responded. This is the wrong way to respond. Look again at verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul begins by saying it's actually reported. He had received a verbal report, as you recall, Chloe's household had sent him a verbal report about disunity that was happening in the church, and now he's heard that there's sexual immorality that's found its way into the church. He says it's actually reported, meaning he was somewhat shocked by this, not just with the sin, but their response to it. Notice, this is sexual immorality of a kind not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So a man who's claiming to be a Christian and a member of the Corinthian church is sleeping with his stepmom. That sounds like a talk show, not a passage of scripture, right? And remember, this is Corinth. This is a city known for its sexual immorality. But this sin is so perverted, it wasn't even tolerated by the pagans, 
by the Roman world. They were ridiculing the Corinthian church for this incest. But notice the sin is not a one-time affair, and now he's seeking out help and repentance. No, a man has his father's wife. Notice the tense, present tense. He has, implying that he hasn't repented of it, but he's continuing on in the relationship. And so how would the church respond? Verse 2 says, and you are arrogant. Literally, you are puffed up with pride. We've already seen that word. Paul's used it already in chapter 4. But in this context, it seems rather strange. He says you're arrogant. When you ought to be mourning, shouldn't you be heartbroken over this sin? But their hearts weren't broken with grief. They were puffed up with pride. Why? They were proud of their tolerance of this man's sin. Proud of their willingness to affirm and just accept everyone. No matter how messy they were, in this way, they not only tolerated the sin, they actually celebrated it. They may have said something like this, hey, we're the church that accepts everyone. We're a grace-filled church. We welcome all people no matter what they've done. And there's a lot of truth to that, right? But we got to be careful. A grace-filled church doesn't tolerate sin. That's cheap grace. That's not grace. That's false grace. And keep in mind, this is a so-called Christian who's making this decision. This is a member of the church who's blatantly participating in sexual immorality. And evidently, the stepmom is not a Christian because there's no action taken to confront her here in these verses. Now, I realize a sin like this seems pretty ugly and... Most of us wouldn't respond with arrogance and pride like the Corinthians did. But more and more, our Christian culture is growing increasingly comfortable with sin of all kinds, especially sexual sin. More and more tolerant. Christians sleeping together before marriage, having affairs, even sexual harassment and exploiting vulnerable people can often tolerate that and turn a blind eye to it. Some of you know the name John Christ, a picture of him here. He's a Christian comedian. Many of you know he gained popularity with his YouTube videos, satirizing Christian culture. I'm not here to shame him. I just want to expose what's going on here, even in the Christian world. Recently, he was accused of sexual harassment allegations, exploiting and manipulating several different women unsolicited sexting, inappropriate touching. And if that wasn't sad enough, evidence suggests that for years there were Christian leaders aware of his behavior and just looked the other way, just turned a blind eye to it. And listen, this is just as sad for him as it is for the victims. Why wouldn't anyone speak up? Christian leaders allowing him to continue on in this behavior. Sadly, churches are sometimes no different. They don't confront Christians in their sin because they're afraid. They fear being legalistic, right? We don't want to be the legalistic church. They fear losing members, especially influential ones. Some commentators believe that this man here perhaps was of a higher social class 
And so maybe they didn't want to go there. They didn't want to confront this man in his sin. We can fear being legalistic, fear losing members, and fear being called judgmental. And as a result, people are in danger. Churches are in real danger. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this. He wrote, nothing can be more cruel than that leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Carl Laney adds this quote. He says, the church that neglects to confront and correct its members lovingly is not being kind, forgiving, and gracious. Such a church is really hindering the Lord's work in the advance of the gospel. The church without discipline is a church without purity. So, so listen, it's never loving to overlook sin of this kind. It's not gracious. It's dangerous. It's not kind. It's actually hateful. And so the church at Corinth, when faced with a man who claimed to be a Christian and yet was continuing on in blatant, unrepentant sin, responded the wrong way. They tolerated it, even celebrated it. And Paul's warning them here and telling them they must respond differently. They must be ready to confront fellow Christians because a lot is at stake here. A lot is at stake here. Look at verses 2 to 5 again. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So verse 3, Paul says, I'm not there with you physically, he was actually in Ephesus, planting a church there, so he's not there present in body, but he's there in spirit. He's with them in spirit, and as their founding pastor, as their spiritual leader and father in the gospel, he says, I want to be clear, this man is in sin, and you've got to, to judge him. In verse 4, he says, here's how, here's how you do that. All of you as a church need to come together and render a judgment to remove this man from your membership. Now, I realize this this makes us feel uncomfortable, right? I mean, this this seems anyway to be harsh and and judgmental. Paul is, is judging Christians, and we don't like that. It goes against the grain of our American culture, which says no one has the right to judge anyone else, right? I mean, isn't that the American... One of the American values, no one has the right to judge anyone else. You don't judge me. And we think of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1, where he writes, Judge not, or you will be judged. That's probably one of the most quoted and yet misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. Listen, here's what it doesn't mean, okay? It does not mean that we sit back passively and never judge anybody. And just turn a blind eye and never confront sin. It doesn't mean that. Here's what it does mean. In the context... It means that we should not have a self-righteous, judgmental attitude toward others. Where we see the speck in their eye, but we can't see the plank in our own. And it reminds me of a story. Young couple moves into their first house. They're eating breakfast together. As they look out the window, they see their neighbor hanging out her laundry on the line. Young wife says to her husband, wow, that laundry isn't clean at all. 
Where did she learn how to wash her clothes? Maybe she should get some new laundry detergent. Husband looks up, doesn't say a word. This happens repeatedly. Every time they see this woman hanging out laundry, the wife makes disparaging comments about it. A month goes by, and one morning, the wife wakes up. She sees laundry hanging on the line. She says, well, look at that. She finally cleaned her laundry. I wonder who taught her how to do that in a very smug, self-righteous tone. Her husband looks up and says, well, actually, honey, I woke up early this morning and washed our windows. (laughs) Some of you just got that one, right? (laughs) Joe, I love it, buddy. That, That is the kind of judging Jesus doesn't want, right? He doesn't want that kind of judging, this self-righteous, judgmental attitude. He didn't like that. But he does want us to judge one another in terms of lovingly confronting one another in our sin. And yet this text makes it clear who we're to judge and who we're not to judge. Look at verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And so here's the principle, and it's so, so important we get this. God judges those on the outside. We judge those on the inside. In other words, God judges unbelievers. We judge believers. We judge Christians, especially and specifically those among you. It's repeated three times here in this text referring to members of the church, those in your local church body. Now, so often we get this mixed up, don't we? I mean, we want to judge the world and everyone out there, right? And we're afraid to judge anyone in here. We point fingers at the culture. We get really loud and and brash, and we throw grenades of judgment out at the culture. And yet, meanwhile, we sit back passively in silence, just trying to keep the peace within the church. Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church from you to judge? That's a rhetorical question. His answer here is yes, you must judge those on the inside. But God will judge those on the outside. So listen, non-Christians will one day be judged. In the meantime, don't pass judgment on them. Love them. Welcome them. Befriend them. Be kind to them. Share the gospel with them, and don't expect them to act like Christians, right? Don't be disappointed and angry if they continue on in sin. It's part of their nature. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul wants to make it crystal clear. When it comes to confronting people in their sin, he's not referring to the outside world, but those inside the church, those who call themselves Christians but are living in blatant, unrepentant sin and don't seem to care. Paul knows how dangerous this can be, what's at stake here, and so he tells the Corinthians they must judge this man, they must be willing to take the steps needed to confront him, and so how are we to judge? How are we to judge Lovingly confront other Christians, because this, this really is the, the ministry of loving confrontation. That's what this is. It's a holy love. It's a holy love that pursues people in their sin. So how do we judge Christians? Number one, starts with grieving. Grieving. Look at verse two again. 
and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? To mourn. When a brother or sister in Christ is caught in sin and can't seem to see their need to get out, it ought to grieve us. It ought to break our hearts. It's one of the hardest things for me as a a pastor when I've spent days, weeks, maybe even months meeting with individuals or couples and talking to them and counseling them and helping them, and only to see them turn the other way and continue on in their sin. That grieves my heart. And yet this grief should lead to action. Grieving should lead to confronting. That's the second. How do we judge Christians? Grieve, and then we confront. In Matthew 18, 5 to 7, Jesus outlines a series of warnings. This is what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here Jesus outlines a series of warnings. Now, we don't have record of this. We're not sure. But perhaps the church already took these steps of going to this man individually and then bringing along other witnesses, and still this man wouldn't repent. Just parentheses here. Most of the time... When it comes to matters of church discipline, when somebody is is dealing with a sin issue and it needs to be confronted, it's 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 serious enough, right? We're not we're not talking about every sin here, so don't don't think that that's what we're talking about. But we're talking about unrepentant sin that's going on and it's a pattern. Most of the time, it can be met at that one-to-one level and never needs to go beyond that into the public sphere like it is here for this man, right? We, we want to keep this confidential. And yet here, this man was confronted, didn't repent, so now has to be removed. Look at verse two again. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, removing the man from among you doesn't mean that we kick him out and put a guard in front of the church doors, and he can never come back again? No, that's not what it means. It means that we remove this man from our membership so he knows that he's not right with God. Things are not right with God if you're in sin and continuing on in it, and you're not getting help with it. He's in danger. In fact, in verse 5, Paul seems to take it a step further. He says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What I think he means here is that Satan is called the the ruler of the world, the prince of the power of the air. And in turning him over or letting him go into this realm of the world, away from the safety of the church, hoping this man will come to his senses like the prodigal son and return and repent. That's the hope. So grieving, confronting, removing And fourthly, distancing, distancing. Look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. By the way, Paul's listing off a number of different sins. He's not necessarily saying this is an exhaustive list. He's giving just a list here, and, and the key is it's a pattern of sin without any repentance. 
And this is hard, because here's what he's saying. He's saying that we should stop hanging out with people who claim to be Christians, yet continue in that pattern of sin with no repentance. That's what he's saying. He says you're not even to eat with such a one. Now, eating in the ancient world signified acceptance and fellowship. And so he said, don't, don't even eat with such a one. Don't, don't compromise here. Yes, keep talking to them, but you can't have close fellowship with that person who says they're a Christian and keeps persisting in sin and defending their sin. If we do so, listen, listen, if we do so, we may actually be encouraging this person that nothing's wrong with how you're living. And they're marching toward destruction. And so that's how we judge Christians. That's how we lovingly confront Christians. But why? Why do we do this? Why is this so important? I want to give you three reasons from this text. Why do we judge Christians? Why do we lovingly confront? Number one, to protect the church. To protect the church. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So Paul uses this imagery from the Passover that these believers would have been familiar with. Leaven or yeast represented sin. And so what he's saying here is that when we confront Christians and we are protecting the church because sin spreads, right? From one person to another, and before you know it, the whole church is affected. Just like a little leaven works through the whole loaf of bread. So number one, why do we judge? Why do we lovingly confront Christians? Number one, we want to do that to protect the church. Secondly, to honor Christ's sacrifice. To honor Christ's sacrifice. Verse seven, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Once again, Paul tells the people to clean out the old so you can become who you really are, a holy people. And he gives the reason why, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Some of you know back in Exodus 12, the blood on the doorposts ensured that God would pass over the people of Israel. They would be saved from punishment. We too, as Christians, have been liberated from, the, from our sin by the blood of Jesus. And he has purified us by his blood to now live as a holy commun community set apart for Christ. Christ's sacrifice is the basis for our holiness, and our holiness honors him as Lord. Think about this. When we live in holiness... We say that the cross really matters. Some of you want to say, well, I've, I've been forgiven. I can live however I want now because I'm forgiven of my sin. And you make a mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ. He died to take the punishment for your sin and has given you his spirit to live within you so that you would live a holy life. So number one, we judge Christians, we lovingly confront to protect the church, number two, to honor Christ's sacrifice, and then number three, to save people's souls, to save people's souls. Look at verse five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord. Spirit would be saved. Notice this confrontation, this discipline is not done for one's embarrassment or punishment. That's not why this is done. It's for their restoration and ultimately their salvation. Think about this. When we have... um, when we see our little kids and they're, they're running out into the street, we are going to run after them and do whatever we can to stop them from danger and from death. Likewise, when, when none of our pleading and, and arm-waving causes a person to turn from their sin, we must pursue them and confront them so they would be saved on the last day. Charles Finney once said this, If you see your neighbor's sin and you pass by and neglect to reprove him, It is as cruel as if you should see his house on fire and pass by and not warn him. By the way, we have good reason to believe that this man in 1 Corinthians 5 turned back and repented of his sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we see this hopeful resolution. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So we see it's a hopeful resolution. It doesn't always end that way. Often this is hard and painful, and yet it's right, and it honors God. And so let me end with with a warning. I want to end with a warning and then a challenge. Here's, Here's the warning. Do you claim to be a Christian, and yet you're living in a pattern of sin? You need to get help with that. You do. But we want to be a church that, that embraces you. It's here to help you and protect you. And we want to come with an attitude like Galatians 6, where Paul says, For such, where he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, we can be gentle with one another because we've played the fool so many times ourselves, right? We're humbled by our own sin. And we can be gentle as we approach one another and help one another out. But this is not just a warning and a challenge to those living in a pattern of sin. I want to also address if you're the one being sinned against. We don't talk about this enough in the church. It breaks my heart to think that there may be, in a church this size, someone being emotionally, physically abused, and they don't know who they can talk to. I want you to know that you can confide in a trusted Christian leader here. If you're you're a woman... My wife, Christina, Emily, other elders' wives would love to talk with you more about that. We want to be help, helpful uh, to you. I know that the church sometimes get to, gets this wrong. We want to reach out and be there for you. So warning, and here's the challenge, and we'll be, we'll be done. The challenge is this. Will we be a church known by our holy love? Will we be a church known by our holy love? You see, love isn't sentimental. It's strong. Love is strong. Love rejoices with the truth. Love pursues people in their sin. 
Confronting Christians ultimately is loving. Think about this. Jesus loved you enough that he came after you, confronted you with your sin, and and beckoned you and pursued you to come to him in faith. And he keeps pursuing us, even as Christians, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and he comes after us to love us enough to not let us go. If he loves us in that way, let's do the same for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who loved us while we were still sinners, helpless, rebelling against you. You came after us and died the death we deserved on the cross and rose again from the grave. And pray if there's one here today who's continuing on in a pattern of sin and has yet to come back to you, that they would fall on their face and humbly admit, I need you, Jesus, in my life, perhaps for the first time. King Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Change my heart, change my life. And I pray for us as a church that we would have this holy love for one another, that we would be gracious and gentle, but also willing to confront when needed. And we do this for the glory of your Son's name. Amen.